Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I've been getting a few messages, and um, it's a good suggestion I've been getting to have more women on the podcast. I think we've done a string of um, men talking that, about their experience being queer or LGBTQ, and we've had far less women. So um, I have some women coming on the podcast because their stories are equally as valid. And in my home today is Colette Dalton. Welcome to the podcast, Colette. Thanks for having me. Colette is somebody I've gotten to know over the last couple of years, just a wonderful, incredibly talented woman. And I'll do my best to introduce her and she can, um, whatever, after I <laughs> correct, add to, subtract. Perfect. Um, but Colette is in her early 30s. She identifies as gay or queer or lesbian. She'll talk more about that. She has had this long journey um, in BYU and the church system, contributing in many ways. She got her bachelor's at BYU. She got a master's in social work at BYU and then has been working for the church, worked for Ensign College. College. They used to be LDS Business School, managing their health counseling and therapy, and has recently um, left and is now a therapist at Symmetry Solutions. So um, one of the things Colette will have insight on is being an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint is that journey, but also being a marriage and family therapist, a licensed clinical social worker. She will have insights on what she's doing to help others. So it's kind of this academic life she has plus plus her own personal experience plus the clinical skills in real life situations to help others so most of the time we don't like script out these podcasts we just say a prayer and i turn it over to <laughs> my guests to kind of share their story um colette's where a lot of um lgbtq latter-day saints are regarding their future they hold um deep belief and Many of the gospel principles our church teaches, but just don't quite know their way forward as an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint. So that's kind of where she is with yep. the church, if that's okay. Um, but I, our, we hope that especially if you're um, a woman, that the things Colette will share with you, especially if you're somewhere on the spectrum, will be helpful for you. Um, if you're also trying to help um LGBTQ people that the things Colette shares will help you. If you've got, if you're a parent of a gay daughter, for example, um, I'm getting some air on my computer that I'm going to ignore listeners, that this podcast will help you. Is that okay, Colette? Uh, hopefully that's not too much pressure. Hopefully I can come through. <laughs> so... I just wanted to thank you for being on the podcast. You're walking a really complicated road. I think you've done this with incredible integrity. I love your all that you did for good at BYU and the church. There's so many people whose lives are better because of you, and I love the work you're doing now. Um, there's so much need for clinically trained therapists, especially have experience in this space. There's trauma, there's pain, there's suicidal ideation, mm -hmm. and the work you're doing is helping I just and so needed. Yeah. Talk about just, you know, your journey as as a gay Latter-day Saint. When did you kind of recognize this was part of you? Yeah, so my story is maybe different than some that you've heard. Um, I feel like especially when men are gay, they realize really young, and I think some women as well, but that wasn't my case at all. Um, so a little background about me, um, grew up in a very Mormon home, um, loved it, did all the things, you know, early morning seminary. I was in California, Trek, Young Women's, EFY, um, went off to BYU, loved it. I got my uh, bachelor's in marriage, family, human development. And then I stayed and got my master's in social work and loved all of that. Um, and I was, it just worked for me. Loved it, loved it. Um, after grad school, I moved up to Boise, Idaho. I'd never been there before. I had a job interview. And um, I moved in with a random woman that I had never met before, except when I went to check out the house. <laughs> I had contacted all the YSA bishops in the area and asked for their Relief Society presence number and asked Relief Society presence, hey, do you know of any girls looking for roommates? I'm moving up. I think it'd probably be good for me to have a built-in friend or two this way. So I moved in with this woman and... Um, I just got going. I was working for Desert Industries for the church um, and in this new area. So we became friends. And after a while, realized, oh, this is something more than just friends. Um, 
And it was weird because I'm like, I'm straight. Like, this is just a weird fluke. I'm totally straight. Just this one weird attraction crush. You know, we were dating, but both still trying to be Mormon. Um, eventually, she moved out because we were. It was too much temptation for us to still be living together. Um, I, I was still in Boise. After a few more years, I moved to Salt Lake for this job with um, LDS Business College, now known as Enzyme College. Um, and around that time, um, that woman that I had dated was starting to date other women. And I was like, wait a minute. I thought we were straight except for each other. Like, what's going on here? Why are you dating other women? Like, what's happening? And... Um, so I felt kind of lost and confused. I was had just moved to Salt Lake. I didn't really have any friends in the area anymore since a lot of my friends had left after school. And so I started kind of reaching out to people in the queer community. I was a part of, um, I was in North Star and reached out to some of the women there being like, I don't know what to do. This is hard. And I met up with the person who then introduced me to more people. And it just kept going from there that I got involved with North Star and Affirmation and in Circle. Um, and as I hung out with these queer, mainly women, um, I and some of them asked me questions I'd never asked myself before. I realized, oh, maybe this wasn't just a fluke. Maybe I had just kind of suppressed my sexuality for so long because, air quotes, a good Mormon woman isn't a sexual being. And so just push it down. It's fine. It's fine that, you know, just stay good. The law of chastity wasn't really ever an issue for me with guys. Um, and so then once I opened up this kind of more sexual side of myself, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not oriented to men. Um, I am oriented to women. And that was a big realization. And it was complicated for sure. I was still working for the church um, and I loved what I did and I was good at it. As a manager of counseling, I was a mental health professional on a college campus full of LDS um, youth, young adults and adults. Well, I guess young adults and adults. Um, people from all ages, all backgrounds, all countries um, and building this from scratch. There had never been mental health on camp, mental health professional on campus before. Um but it, it was complicated. <laughs> um, I definitely dealt with a lot of suicidal ideation. Um, I've dealt with depression since middle school. I never, I got help a few sessions at BYU my freshman year in their counseling center. Um, but then I never sought out help again until after um, my first girlfriend and I had broken up and I was just struggling. Um, but it really wasn't until I really started wrestling with my sexuality and spirituality and where do I fit? The suicidality was bad. I don't think I realized how bad it was until I passed it and looking back, but talking to my therapist, she was like, yeah, I, there were times I thought I was going to lose you. Um, and I think people need to know that that can be people's reality, that it can be that dark as you're wrestling with for me, it felt like two very opposing sides of myself. I had my queer, lesbian, gay self, and I had my church self. And it seemed like there was no way to integrate it. It was one or the other. I had to pick one or the other, which meant I had to kill off one or the other is kind of how it felt. And at that time, it was like, well, then why am I even here? If it's one or the other, I can't integrate. Um, luckily, great therapist, great friends. <laughs> um and working through things, it's still complicated. <laughs> um, but I, I'm grateful that I'm here and that I'm in a place where now I feel comfortable more sharing my story. So hopefully others can know they're not alone. Thank you, Colette. It takes just courage to sh share what you just shared and to be honest and vulnerable. And, and I just think that takes great courage. So thank you. Um, talk about suicide and this is you talking about how you got out of that and you talking to others and you do this professionally. Yeah. <laughs> how much of the suicide was related to just your sexuality and the complexities of your path forward because of your sexuality? And 
I'm sort of a, I'm an analytical guy. So there's a side of my brain that says, okay, this was 48% because of this and 52% because of this. I know it's more complicated than that, but help us understand um, just how much of it was tied into your sexuality that led you to suicide ideation. Um, honestly, I've heard people say before, and I agree, it's, it's not my sexuality. It's the problem. It's people's problems with my sexuality. Oh, that's gold. <laughs> R- rewind that listeners. <laughs> um, and it's been said in different ways, but that's like, if people being queer was socially acceptable and not an issue, there wouldn't be an issue. And so that was the hard thing was trying to figure out, okay, I'm told in church, it's okay to be gay but not if you act on it, but by living, I'm acting on it. Like, I think a lot of people think, oh, they're lesbian, they're queer, they're shoving their sexuality in my face. Um, It's how I'm oriented. That's not like when I say I'm gay, lesbian, queer, it's not, I think a lot of people's minds jump to, oh, that's who she would want to have sex with. Okay, sure. But like, that's not what I mean. (laughs) What when I say I'm that it's how I'm oriented. It's how I relate to others. It's how I care about others. It's how I connect with others. Um, And that is one thing that always bothered me. Stop shoving your sexuality in my face. People shove their straight sexuality in people's faces all the time when they walk down the street holding hands with their partner, when they talk about their wife over the pulpit, when they are scratching their partner's back in a church meeting. Um, It's not just about sex. And um, I think that's one thing to keep in mind. So going back to your question, I think it was just because I was told this narrative of if you act on it, you're sinning, you're going against God. And so I think a lot of people kind of go down the path of, well, there's no hope then, because if I want to live authentically, this is the way I'm oriented, setting aside sex, you can be a virgin and still know you're oriented a certain way. Um, There just doesn't seem a way forward. And so there have been people that have been told, I'd rather you were dead than gay. And so how can you not internalize that and say, okay, well, if I, if I'm dead now, but I'm not sinning, then it will be better after if people even trying to helpfully say, well, God will work it out in the next life. And you don't see a way of it working out now. Why not speed that up? And that's kind of where my mind was, was I can't figure out how to make this work. I don't see hope going forward. I'm going to have to pick one or the other. And neither seems feasible. I'm going to have to give up something that's really important to me one way or the other. And the only way that seemed to make it work was if I wasn't here anymore. Um, Very, very grateful for good therapists, good friends. But just to show how dark my mindset was, um, I was talking to a friend who's also queer at one point. We were coming back from a concert. And she was saying, you know, when I, when I'm feeling down and suicidal, I just think back to younger me and what I would have missed out on if I had died and taken my life at the time that I was really struggling. And I was like, oh, I can't do that because everything since middle school is just like, eh, she was like, what? wow, like that's where your mindset is that you can't even see any good that's happened in your life right now because you're so in this. And honestly, genuinely, that's where my mind was. <laughs> it's like, yeah, nothing, nothing's good happened. Why am I even here? Gratefully, I'm past that now. <laughs> but it was a really, really long road um, that I'm grateful I made it out alive. <laughs> I love this idea of older selves and younger selves helping us out of really dark places. And um, so I love that principle. I'm sure you're sharing it with others. I love this quote, listeners, that I share sometimes that help me to understand more why queer Latter-day Saints may be suicidal. It's a Brene Brown quote, not belonging um, or physiological isolation is the most terrifying and destructive feeling a person can experience. It's not the same as being alone. It's a feeling that one is locked out of the possibility of human connection and powerless to change the situation. In the extreme, this isolation can lead to an extensive sense of 
hopelessness and desperation, people will do almost anything to escape the combination of condemned isolation and powerlessness. 100% agree. So, I mean, that's pretty sobering reading that quote. Mm -hmm. And it helps me understand the space you're in and just my heart, other listeners' heart. Just so what do we do? She says we embrace, we value, empathize, and we help people know they belong with us. Talk about this idea. Um, well, what, just before, just talking more about the belonging. Good. Save the question. I'm sure it'll be good and I'll come back to it. But I, that's what really honestly helped me was having people who got it and understood and accepted me no matter what. You know, I made friends in North Star and it's kind of common for a lot of people to land in North Star, very church affirming as they're trying to figure out the sexuality and then maybe realize it's not the right fit for them anymore as they start dating people of the same gender. And so I have friends in there who are like, don't stop talking to me. Like you are always my friend, no matter who you're dating. There's no, I love you, but, and I think that's what's so hard for a lot of queer people is hearing that idea of, I love you, but I love you but I'm worried about your eternal salvation. I love you, but you're making the wrong choice. I love you, but God can't be happy with you right now with the choices you're making. Um, That's not belonging. That is very othering. I hate when a lot of times in church, people kind of make it almost an us against them of, oh yeah, the gays, the queer people, not realizing there are queer people in the population, in the congregation sitting next to you that want to belong. And that's, I think, just so important to have your space of belonging. And it was hard because I didn't feel like I belonged in either group. A lot of times I kind of joke that I'm too Mormon for the gays and too gays for the Mormons. Um, So where do I fit? Luckily, I have friends from both camps. Um, and I, I may not fit a traditional mold anywhere, but I, I know that I'm okay and that God's okay with me. That was a big turning point was just getting a confirmation of God knows you, loves you and is okay with where you're at. No matter where this path takes you, you're good and you belong with God. Um, so I'm still figuring it out. It's a long, it's a lifelong journey and path, but that belonging piece is so important. That thing I talk a lot about with my clients when they feel alone is, okay, who can you talk to? Who are your people? And if you don't have people, let's get you some people. (laughs) Belonging is key, I think, to the human experience. I sense listeners, um, what Colette is sharing is what I'm seeing done in in a lot of circles, including church circles, talking about belonging. Mm -hmm. BYU created an office of belonging. I'm aware of some initiatives internally in the church around belonging. Mm And I think that Christ did everything in his ministry. I don't know if that word's in the New Testament, but he modeled that in, sure. his own, in his own ministry because he was with everybody and helped them feel like they belong and were mm-hmm. needed and valued. And I think there's a fair amount of othering that intentionally or unintentionally occurs. And I think we need to mature as a point where we sort of look at the world through those that have the hardest feeling belonging and say, what are we going to do to help them feel like they belong? Yeah, I think uh, one thing I also tell my clients was the idea that I heard that evolutionarily we needed people. The reason rejection hurts so much and when we don't feel like we belong, it hurts so much is evolutionarily in the caveman days. (laughs) If you were kicked out of your group, you would die. Like you would physically die because you wouldn't be able to fight off the saber tooth tigers. You wouldn't be able to hunt on your own and gather on your own and stay warm. Um, And so when you think about that way, that's how important belonging is as human beings. It can feel like a death when you don't belong because that was the risk we ran. So even if you're still physically safe, emotionally, you feel cut off. So we need that belonging. And I think you're right. Christ modeled that so perfectly in reaching out to those who were othered and didn't feel like they belonged and made sure they knew that they belonged with him. One of the things you said I I loved, you talked about the North Star, your North Star queer friends Mm -hmm. and how they just love you um, and support you on the best path forward for you. And this is a research study that I, this is the marketing research side of my mind that <laughs> has picked up on a hypothesis that I don't know if it's true, but it seems like queer people in the church are the most, are more empathetic to queer people that separate themselves from the church. 
uh, because they know how hard the road is and they have the most sort of compassion, love, and just leaving that at the Savior's feet. Um, that may not be true in every situation, and certainly straight people that in the church that support LGBTQ people on whatever path they feel is best. But I've thought about that. But it's some, something about you know that road, and mm-hmm. you know how difficult the road is, and so you just have more empathy for people mm-hmm. as they walk their best path forward. Any thoughts on that? <laughs> no, I think that's really true. I think— um, If someone isn't on the road, it's hard to understand how complicated it is. Um, I was talking to another provider at Cemetery about the idea that so often it is people try to say helpful things and it's not as helpful as they think it is because it can feel very othering and it can um, just make people feel alone. And I think... A lot of times I think there's the tendency, like there is power in storytelling and that's why I'm here sharing my story. I'm glad I'm in a place that I can share my story, but I think there can also be the tendency to want to hold up someone's story and say, look, they're doing it. They're staying in the church and staying celibate. Why can't you? Or this lesbian couple divorced so that they could be right with the church. Why can't you? And I think queer people understand like, and we do a lot of disclaimers of like, this is my path. This is my story. Do not hold it up for anyone else. I don't know where my path is leading. Um, And I think people who are on that path understand that. And because of that, they know how complicated it is. And there, of course, there's people, even queer people who may still hold up people's stories of like, this is how it should be. But overall, I think there is a lot of grace and compassion because it is a hard road. It's such a hard road and they've wrestled with it themselves and this is where they're, they've landed and this is where they've landed for now. <laughs> it may not be forever. Um, so that's some of my thoughts on that, if that makes sense. It does make sense. <laughs> and you talk about um, parents that have, and we're using the labels queer, gay, and lesbian Mm -hmm. interchangeably here in this podcast. And Colette (laughs) may want to talk about that at some point in the podcast, but talk now about that if you want to, but talk to parents that have a queer daughter and they are looking for just principles of parenting. This is like a pre, you know, a high school age or younger um, sort of that age that's brave enough to come out mm-hmm. and their parents are looking for just things you could share with them that'll help them? Um, I think there is the tendency sometimes to dismiss queer individuals when they're younger and coming out as being confused or not knowing. But you never hear that narrative of a five-year-old saying they that he has a crush on a girl. Oh, you're just confused. You don't know yet. You can't know yet. People can know their orientation very and gender identity very young. Um, not everyone's experience, of course. That wasn't my experience. I didn't start figuring it out till I was in my late 20s. <laughs> um, and I work with clients who are even older when they figure out that, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not straight. Um, so I think that's an important thing is to realize that they're not confused. Yes, identity exploration is part of growing up, and that might be exploring some sexuality aspect. Um, and there is some sexual fluidity for some people, which is fine and normal. Um, but I think the most important thing is to believe them. If this is what they're coming to you and this is their truth, don't discount it. Don't say, oh, you you don't know yet. You're just confused. That's so incredibly invalidating and that makes walls go up and not want them to want to talk to you in the future because it, oh, they they don't listen to me. They don't hear, they don't care. So I think that's a big piece. Um, that's the main thing that jumps to mind. Um, I'm sure there's other things. Oh, another thing. I was, um, I was following someone on Instagram and they said they had talked to their therapist and the therapist said, you know, it's really interesting. A lot of Mormon parents, the most important thing they can do, they think is the most important thing they want to pass along is make sure their child is good, that they are a good person living righteously. That's the most important goal for some Mormon parents. And this therapist said, But generally, outside of higher demand religions, parents, the most important thing they want for their child is to know that they're loved. 
And my jaw just dropped when I read that. I was like, wait a minute. That's really interesting. And I, when I was dating an individual last summer, they were really so good with their kids um, of just knowing, showing that you're loved, that nothing you can do would take you too far away from my love. Yes, I want you to be a good person and I'm teaching you principles to be a good moral upstanding citizen. But the most important thing for you to know about my parenting and my you being in my life is that I love you. That's the most important thing. And that was just so neat and even healing to see that I think a lot of parents, not to discount, like, yes, we want to have moral productive members of society that are following church principles and being good people. Sure. But I feel like that can naturally come out of knowing they're loved. And if children question that my parents is gonna, are going to say, I love you, but I love you, but you aren't following church standards. I love you, but you need to step up what you're doing with the church. Whatever it may be, that love may not come through the same way because it feels conditional when you qualify it that way. Why can't it just be, I love you? The most important thing for you to know is that you are loved. So that was my other thought about that. That's gold. Um, that's fascinating as a parent to think about good versus loved. And I recognize a lot of our parenting energy is focused on, you know, getting our kids to be good members of society. And that's mm -hmm. often the the wonderful things they do within Latter-day Saint world, uh, Boy Scouts, um, Girl Scouts. Mm -hmm. um, kind achievement of days, young women, young days, men. And all this, which sort of is the manifestation of good, this, and I love all these things, but it can create a checklist culture and a way mm -hmm. of seeing as parents that we see our children by completing these milestones. But the real, which are all, I think we're both saying those are good. Very good. I'm not discounting it and I'm not a parent. So maybe take my thoughts with a no, grain of salt. I think you're just, you've got great parenting instincts. And, um, but I rec, I do when I interviewed just hundreds and hundreds of parents and put that in the book, parents of LGBTQ children after deep personal revelation and prayer and temple attendance, just God, you know, heavenly parents just say, love your child yeah. and leave everything. Else. And it's relieving in a way because then the parents aren't, they sort of say, I can do that. Mm -hmm. I can't quite control the outcome that no. I probably had thought for my child at one point. And I, and how perhaps I measured my success as a parent by these outcomes for my children. And I'm just kind of going through this stage of measuring my success as a parent by letting my children know they're loved mm -hmm. and keeping the family circle together. And, well, and that can be relieving for a parent. I think so. And I, I, I see a lot of hurt in my office and talking to friends. The whole idea of no success can compensate for failure in the home. My idea is a failure is not your children not feeling that they're loved. Your success as a parent, I think a lot of times we do hang it on the checklist, the idea of, oh, all my children served missions and got married in the temple. I don't think that's necessarily success. I think the success is that they know that they're loved and that nothing can take them out of the circle of our family's love. I'm with you on that. And I'm sensitive to parents' You know, I love hearing testimonies and stories of families that are able to meet that. Mm -hmm. But I recognize that that's not the reality for all Latter-day Saint Very parents. True. And and so we just need to share those. I think it's fine to share those, but recognize that some people may feel like they are lesser of a parent because that didn't happen for them. Right. And then I think women in particular look inward and say, well, what, what did I not do? Um, and they sort of go through this negative self-reflection mm -hmm. of things. No parent's perfect, so we can all find things in our past that we should be done different <laughs> to try to link that with the choices of our children. But I think we just do what you're teaching us to do is love. And I think that checklist culture is dangerous for everybody <laughs> because Christ and God, it's about becoming. It's not a checklist. And that's one thing I wrestle with a lot of people in my office when they do leave the church going through a faith transition, trying to figure out, they're like, well, what do I do without a checklist now? Or even if they're staying in the church, it's like, well, what does endure to the end mean? There is no checklist. So 
it really is about becoming who God wants you to become in my mind. And I think that's been very freeing for me when I just keep checking in with God. Am I good? (laughs) And as I live more authentically, as I speak out more, as I build where I can in my little corner of Zion of the queer community, LDS people going through faith transitions, whatever, where I'm serving, I feel like I'm good. And it isn't a checklist, but I'm doing the work that God needs me to do. Not a checklist. It's a becoming. What advice do you have for local leaders at the ward, home ward level, um, bishops, young women's president, young men's presidents that have youth in the ward um, and may just from a number standpoint, suspect some are closeted um, or some may be not even fully aware of their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Should they talk about this? Should they not talk about this? Should they get the parents okay to talk about it? I think a lot of local leaders recognize their youth are talking about it and want to mm-hmm. sort of talk about this, but there's a fear of parents and some leaders that just talking about it will confuse people into being queer. And I, your, your listeners have Colette shaking her head sideways. <laughs> So I I guessed how she thought about this, but it's kind of, I think at the young adult level, the YSA ward level, this is easier to talk about. Um, But at the home ward, especially with high school youth or junior high youth, a lot of local leaders just don't quite know how to navigate this Mm -hmm. and they're risk adverse. They don't want to get sideways with parents or so they just don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. So any thoughts for local leaders? Don't be afraid of talking about it. Um, I think so much of the hurt and damage that people come to in my office is because of the shame. And as we know from research from Brene Brown, shame thrives in silence. And so being able to talk about it, being able to have it be a normal thing of conversation there's power in that. And I don't think you're going to confuse anybody. (laughs) Um, And I think kids and young adults, it's more normal. Uh, Again, the person I was dating last summer um, at the time, I think their youngest was four. Um, And they had a friend over who's trans and this four-year-old knew this person as a girl originally was using she, her pronouns and all these things. And now was I saying, no, I'm, I'm a man using he, him pronouns. And the four-year-old was kind of confused by it, but as their mom just normalized it and said, no, like they're, they're a boy. We're going to say he, him use his name. She's like, but, but he's a girl. (laughs) She's like, well, four-year-old, what, what are you? Are, are, what, how would you feel if I called you a boy? And she's like, but I'm a girl. Okay. And, and he's a boy. Um, trust that. And then, you know, she just kind of drops. She's like, Oh, okay. Like just that simple of an explanation. Kids can get it. They're not confused. And I think they grow up in a culture where being queer is more normalized and it's not because there's more queer people. <laughs> I've had this conversation with people. Why are there so many more gay people now? There's not more gay people. There's more gay people feeling safe to be out. There's more queer people that can be out. They're not going to be thrown in jail for cross-dressing. They're not going to be murdered because they hit on somebody, we hope. <laughs> um, there's just less fear. And so it is more normal. So they most likely already have queer friends that are out. Um so don't be afraid to talk about it. Shame thrives in silence. I agree with that. I think at the I'm not at the junior high level or the high school level, but I think these are discussions. Everybody knows who David Archuleta is, I would guess, in our young men's, young women's programs, mm-hmm. um, maybe worldwide, and they're aware that he's out, mm-hmm. um, LGBTQ on the spectrum. And so it's pretty logical for junior high and high school kids to talk about David Archuleta and what that mm-hmm. means. And I think we just need to learn how to talk about this. I really agree with Colette that talking about it doesn't confuse people into being LGBTQ. No. It just makes it a safe place for them to be themselves, whatever that means. And you could go to the church's website. If you know, I think the best way to start is just use church leader quotes. The church website has church leader quotes 
On our website, listenlearnandlove.org, we have a section that has articles, and it's just church articles. If So if you want to introduce this subject um, at the local level, I think using church content is the safest way to do that. But church leaders are talking about this. President Nelson, in a women's meeting, we were doing the Saturday Night Women's Men's, and now we're mm-hmm. back to just kind of a combined. He used the vocabulary LGBTQ with, I think— mm-hmm audience members eight and older in that meeting or perhaps 12 and older so it i think it's i think it's just a needed conversation and i think that each leader will know how to talk about this now some will hear your story and i know you've heard this and all this all this and trigger and say well you're only queer colette because you had that experience with Mm -hmm. your roommate Mm -hmm. and if you hadn't had that experience with your roommate you're really a straight person that had that experience that confused you and you're kind of permanently confused and you're really just straight. Because <laughs> um, I think a lot of straight people, we want to put this not our problem or not something that we mm. need to minister to or not something. So we sometimes just say this is just all – if I if you're just a confused straight person, then I have no responsibility <laughs> here. But if you're right. actually – God actually created you the way he created you, then – then it puts the responsibility on me as a fellow Latter-day Saint to create a feeling of belonging for mm-hmm. you and to do what I can do to help you feel God's love and, and acceptance in the circles I'm in. So <laughs> run with that one, Colette. Sure. Yeah, I definitely heard that one. And honestly, that's what I believed myself for a long time. It was, oh, this one-off, totally straight. It was just this one person, total fluke. Um and there's a lot of people who end up in my office being like, am I actually gay? Like, I don't know. What does this even mean? And one of the reasons I like the word queer is it is so encompassing. <laughs> um, it's anything other than heterosexual, right? Um, I remember seeing someone on Twitter, I think, talk about, it was actually the idea about gender identity um, and saying there's only two genders, male and female. And it's like, okay. And, you know, they say it, and this is what happened in the Bible, just male and female. And the person said, hey, um, it also says God created the day and night, but didn't God also create dawn and dusk and the in-betweens? It says God created the land and the water. And didn't God also create the marshes and the swamps and those in-betweens? And that was obviously very much talking about the gender piece, but I think... There's also that space for sexual orientation that I think labels can be helpful until they're not. (laughs) And I use that a lot with people. And if the label helps you to find your community or feel more at peace with who you are, awesome. But if the label's limiting to you, you're valid no matter how you identify. You're valid if you are confused, you're valid if you know. I love that because I I love the nuance you're building in that. I've never heard um, the idea of marshes, mm-hmm. which is really water and land. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of dawn and dusk, and mm-hmm. I love the idea of gender minorities and sexual minorities on the spectrum. And I love where this isn't a mistake or something went awry. No. Um, I don't believe God's capable of making mistakes or being surprised. I think we're all created as we're intended to be created, and we all mm-hmm. should be on the same moral footing. also love just compassion you give for people that aren't quite sure where their sexual orientation mm-hmm. is. That was me for a long time. <laughs> and, I, and maybe society wants, and maybe it's easier for men to figure it out, and women wants everybody to get the finish line and know where they are. Maybe I think I'm hearing from you that that can create added burden because you're not quite sure where mm-hmm. you are. And I love that you're just giving people permission. And maybe this is this is probably good for guys and women, men and women, just to be at peace that you'll mm-hmm. continue to figure that out. But what you're feeling, there should be no shame in what you're feeling. Right. And that's where, as I think that's where Satan wins in this whole equation, especially is creating shame that what I am is displeasing to God. So I should not talk to my heavenly parents or mm-hmm. anybody about this. And that to me just creates the isolation you're talking about. Yeah. Thank you. I think you were saying that a lot better than I was trying to express it. It's just great. Um, a bunch of people in your life that you're not invalidating their stories. And I think it's, that comes back to something you said earlier that's so important is don't take 
one story and sort of apply it to another. So if there's mm-hmm. some person that feels they're not quite sure where their sexuality is, I don't think it's our job to then say, well, you're, this is really how you should feel if you're Thank so, you. yes. if you're so at the finish line that you're actually a gay woman, you should listen to this story and it may take you off that finish line. I think we just, I think it's fine to hear other stories, but the mm-hmm. word weapon is something that I like that we shouldn't as a outside, I don't know what, outside party to the, an individual's personal journey as we take a story and say, this is how you get to the finish line in your story. Yeah. One of my guests talked about, don't take another story and make it your story, but it's okay to hear stories mm-hmm. as you're writing your story. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of empathy in your heart about just not everybody's to the finish line in their story. And that's maybe okay. Yeah. And don't put, I think another thing is don't put labels on others. If you want to label yourself, as you're figuring it out, if you don't want to put a label on yourself as you're figuring out, those are both great. I would just hesitate. Don't put a label on someone else as they're still figuring it out. And I don't mean that to weaponize of, oh, don't tell your child, oh, you don't put a label on yourself because you're not sure yet as you're figuring out your sexuality. That means you're straight is your default label. But just be careful with labels that way, I think of... Don't put yourself in a box. We're not meant to be in boxes. And I think that's the difficulty with labels. Talk is. about lesbian, gay, queer. Um, I use them interchangeably. Um, I know that a lot of, there are women that prefer using the term gay because lesbian kind of has a stigma sometimes for some people. And I use all of them because I there isn't a stigma for any of them for me. I tend to use gay or queer because it's one syllable. <laughs> um, but lesbian also works, again, just trying to break down stigma. Gay, a lot of people, it's traditionally men who are attracted to other men, but I think some women also just use the term gay. Um, and queer, I love because it's so encompassing as a label, if you were to use a label. Um because it can be you're gay, you're lesbian, you're bi, you are um, pansexual. There's so many different things that it encompasses along with gender um, and gender fluidity. It, it's just very encompassing. And I like kind of that idea of being belonging in a bigger, broader community, even if I'm not sure exactly what my labels are sometimes, even if I am still questioning, I'm still part of the broader community. So I like queer. I've noticed, um, and I've only been in the space six years, but that's a long time in this space, but I've noticed um, more people taking on the queer label. Before we went live, you actually described it as Mm -hmm. reclaiming. Mm -hmm. The queer label. And yeah. I've noticed that because I'm 60 and that is a very negative term from my high school years. And a lot of um, LGBT people my age, that is very triggering for them, right. as you know, and you probably have clients. But I've noticed I kind of, my guess is LGBTQ plus is fading a little bit and the mm-hmm. queer label will just be a very wonderful umbrella term to describe where it's not straight or cisgender. Yeah, I think it's a very great label that way. But there is, I think, the trauma associated, particularly for people who are a little older, when that was such a slur that was used against them. But we've seen this in other communities of people taking back what were seen as derogatory names and labels. You see that in disabled, you know, people proudly having that label now. People, the fat community, that's sometimes used very derogatory. They're like, yeah, I'm fat. I'm part of the, you know bigger it's not a bad word to them and I think that's kind of the power with the queer identity too is taking back something that used to be used as a slur as power of embracing like yes this is me you can't use it as a weapon anymore this is something that I resonate with I love that uh, to me, when you talk about what Brene Brown's trying to teach, and I think what the Savior's trying to teach, I think that's very consistent. Mm-hmm. You said something I've way back at the beginning of the podcast that I've been kind of thinking about concurrently with doing the podcast. <laughs> and and you talked, and I probably won't use the right vocabulary, but you, oh, I did circle it. You're, women are taught not to be sexual beings. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I'm thinking back to, the narrative when I was a young man growing up that I'm a sexual being and 
um, I'm sort of out of control. It's the women's job to keep me in control. <laughs> yeah. So I'll dress modestly. Uh -huh. and, and the message there is that I'm a sexual being and I, I'm so out of, I'm such a sexual being that I need all the women around me to be so modest because mm -hmm. I'm just out of control. Mm -hmm. And maybe that allows men to <laughs> understand their sexuality earlier mm -hmm. because culturally we talk about men that way. Why women, to your point, we're not taught to be sexual beings. Right. And so being coming aware of our sexual orientation it, it, so that's fascinating to me. No one's ever I mean, sort of brought that up on the podcast. That's my theory. <laughs> I don't know that there's any necessarily research backing it up, but I have definitely seen it in my life and in friends' lives and clients' lives that it is so suppressed in a lot of ways. I mean, you don't hear um, leaders telling young men to cover up with a t-shirt at a pool party. Whereas, because the women are going to be out of control. Right. And even though, you know, they might see abs and think, oh, sexuality, it's very socialized very differently. And um, I think culturally, a lot of times women are told to be the gatekeepers. You're the ones who, if a guy wants too much, that you are the one that needs to stop it before it goes too far. Um and so a lot of these messages, and so I have worked with a lot of women and friends with women that sometimes don't know their sexuality till later because they just shove it down, don't examine it. And then maybe they open it up with their husbands and then they're like, wait a minute. Okay, I'm a sexual being now and this isn't fitting. I wasn't able to explore this part of my identity. But we're all sexual beings to some extent. Um, I'm actually training to become a sex therapist because it is so fascinating to me. And I think Mormons are really screwed up sometimes when it comes to sex. <laughs> um, I'm actually helping at Symmetry facilitate a group for women reclaiming their um, sexual pleasure. And just all these stories of women who maybe didn't know it was okay um, to be a sexual person, even within their marriage. And so, yeah, I definitely have seen women who don't realize till later when they open up a sexual side of themselves and then fall in love with a best friend, because they are now allowing themselves to be a sexual being and allowing connections in a way they weren't before because it was so suppressed. And I think that was kind of, kind of my experience. It's a really good segment. Um, I think it's good for um, our faith and for society in general with queer people becoming aware they're queer. Um, I sort of put it in the high school years, junior high years, because I just think it gives them time to process that before they really have to decide their best their best path forward mm -hmm. um, to understand their sexuality, have people in their life walking to them to, to build their relationship with heavenly parents, mm -hmm. principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so then in their 20s, I'm not making this just the same story for everybody, but a lot can, it isn't until the 20s where they really have to figure out their future. And so mm -hmm. when I meet with someone in their um, pre-mission age for a man or woman, if a woman's going on a mission, you know, I just sort of, they sometimes want to know their future. And I say, well, just build your foundation right now. Mm -hmm. And you'll maybe, and then you'll, you'll know at the right time how to move forward. I also think this, we don't get in the subject very much, but we do sort of talk about all the taboo subjects on this podcast, and I'm just not qualified <laughs> to talk about um, the, some of the things you just talked about. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the right vocabulary, except that I do agree we're sexual beings, and I do agree that um, our heavenly parents want us to enjoy that experience mm -hmm. and men and women. And I remember being a wise, I'm getting sidetracked here, I remember being a YSA bishop and asking a therapist what I should tell couples because they my my YSA bishop gave me a kind of a checklist of things that I could or couldn't do once I was married. <laughs> I was a little uncomfortable by that yeah. way back then. And I, I reached out to a therapist, a female therapist, and she said, what the principle you should teach is communication mm -hmm. and that whatever you're doing or not doing, it, whatever you're doing is equally bringing you both together and equally enjoying. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have this checklist of what they should or shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. Oral sex is something the YSAs often were kind of curious about if mm -hmm. that was against church teachings or okay once you were married. And I didn't answer that. I just mm -hmm. taught that principle mm -hmm. and let them decide that for themselves versus a checklist of what they should or shouldn't be doing. So that's a whole nother subject, listeners. But oh, no. Sex therapy is fascinating and sexual 
health principles of the ideas of consent and honesty and mutual pleasure. And I think the church could do a lot better in teaching those things because I think for a lot of people, women in particular, who are maybe taught they're not sexual beings, it's really hard to flip the switch as soon as they get married of sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. Oh, you're married now. Now it's fine. That's hard for a lot of women, even if they are straight, then you add the queerness on top of it and it can add a lot of issues. I just think that's a subject we need to talk about um, because the not talking about it is the is where the shame and the misunderstanding and the sort of you come to the conclusions based on little bits of information. So I hope we can learn to talk about that. I didn't have any training on how to talk about that. Um, Couples were getting going into marriage and I wish I had um, some of the skills you had from a clinical perspective and, but our, in our lay leadership, we don't. So Mm -hmm. as you know, and as your clients tell you, you get a range of feelings from, um, priest leaders that are trying to do the right thing mm-hmm. as people open up, but may not just have some of the skills you're suggesting. I want to talk about toxic relationships. I wrote that down. We haven't, we didn't talk about that ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, straight people get into toxic relationships, sure. um, but I've almost wondered if it's a little more because a vulnerable gay person dating for the first time. I don't know if there's a higher incidence of toxic relationships, but I've wondered if there is. Um, And I don't want to, but I just talk about if, and I think being vulnerable and being valid, needing validation, perhaps it's a little more likely to get into an unhealthy relationship and and then harder to get out because you're closeted in this relationship potentially. And you can't tell your parents you're in a same sex toxic relationship Mm -hmm. and that the other partner may sort of, keep you away from the people that could help you. So just define a toxic relationship and what if you, and to people that realize they're in a toxic relationship, what advice you'd give to them? Great question. Yeah. I don't know percentages or studies or anything, but I definitely see it and especially resonate with the idea of when someone's closeted, I think it's harder to get help because who do you talk to about it? If you can't even talk about the fact that you're in a relationship, you can't talk about the fact that you might be in a toxic relationship. And I've definitely seen that. Um, I think toxic relationship is like any relationship that isn't healthy for a very generic definition. Relationships should be free from abuse, any sort of abuse, whether that's physical, sexual, emotional, psychological, financial. Um, And so any relationship with that in it is toxic. Um, if someone, and and I think the most damaging kinds, I think a lot of people, um, actually a person I dated had been married to a man before and it took her a long time to realize that she was in an abusive marriage because he didn't hit her. And I think a lot of times we talk about abuse and we think physical and we don't talk about, um, in this case, a lot of, I mean, uh, marital rape happened. Um, him being very controlling about money to the point that she would have to hide her purchases from the library book sale of 25 cent novels um, because that wasn't allowed for her to spend the money that way of him saying things about her not being good enough in different ways. And I think it can be very insidious because again, we don't know, we don't always define these things. I think the churches can be really good about preparing for the wedding and not the marriage um, in both gay and straight. Um, And so again, I think it can thrive in silence. So as we normalize, like, I want to know about your relationships, regardless of who you're dating. If someone feels like they can't talk to you about their relationship because it's a queer relationship, they may not get the help they need. I was talking about a straight relationship, but we don't always know what's normal. Cause again, he didn't hit her. It didn't really, she didn't have a wake up call of what was going on until she was once he hit their dog and that was a wake up call of, oh, if he hit an animal. But another one was, oh, if I can just endure to the end, God won't make me be married to him in the eternities. And she's like, wait a minute, then why am I still married to him now? (laughs) Um, So just, 
I think if you can be a safe person that people can talk to about any relationship, you might be able to help them recognize toxic things that sometimes you can't see from the outside. I was sitting with a client the other day who even just as she was talking through, again, it was a straight relationship, but she was like, as I say this out loud, I realize this doesn't sound good. <laughs> you know, in my head, it seemed normal, but as I say it and realize, oh no, like that, that wasn't consent. Um, and so I think that's helpful to be able to just be a safe person that they can talk about any and all relationships and maybe realize it's not healthy. You don't have to hide it. How do you um, get out of a toxic relationship? And it's probably more complicated if you're oh, married and there's kids. So complicated. Talk about an unmarried queer relationship that one person recognized, hey, I've got myself in trouble here. I don't know who to turn to. I recognize it's toxic, but it's just the only safe place for me. And I keep getting re-traumatized. Mm -hmm. And maybe I deserve the trauma because I'm queer and this is God punishing me by oh, keeping me in sure. this toxic relationship. Yeah. And I've heard some of these stories. Definitely heard those. Yeah. It's just how do you get out? Um, I think that's part of the issue of still being in the closet. Because I think one thing that happens a lot in toxic queer relationships is the idea of the fear of being outed. Because the person you're in a relationship with, if they're being toxic, can say, like, if you don't do X, Y, Z, then I'll tell your family about us. If you don't do X, Y, Z, then I'll tell your bishop that you're sinning. You know, whatever power there is that way, the power and control wheel is a great thing to look up if you're interested in toxic relationships and trying to figure out some of the signs. Um, and so I think that's one thing just in general is I realize it's not always safe to be out. <laughs> um, that's something I had to wrestle with, especially working for the church. It didn't feel safe to be out. Even if I wasn't acting on it, who knew how someone might construe my behavior and I could then lose my job and my way I was supporting myself. Um, and so I think if you can talk to people, even if it's not everyone, but maybe a cute few close friends to explain what's going on and see if you can go to a therapist, um, you can, having a safety plan if you think that that could turn a be uh, like unsafe for you um that's loveisrespect.org is a good website and being able to kind of look at that stuff um i think just telling people and realizing that you never have to stay in a in a situation or relationship that makes you uncomfortable I think a lot of times in general in life, we make a decision and feel like, okay, I made the decision. I have to stick here now. Like I made my bed. I've got a lie in it. No, you can, you can leave. <laughs> um, and I think just giving yourself that permission, you don't have to stay in any situation that makes you feel less than or alone or hurt. If you're in a relationship that's making you feel that way all the time, that's not a healthy relationship and you don't deserve that. Even if you are sinning, God isn't a vending machine God and isn't punishing you because you put in the, oh, I'm in a queer relationship, so that means I'm going to have a bad one. No, like there are so many happy queer relationships. And honestly, in the people I've dated, I feel like I've become a more Christ-like person because of the people I've been with that have been so good and helped me become better. So don't stay because of fear. Fear is a powerful motivator, but it's not a good long-term thing, not a long-term motivator. <laughs> so don't stay. You don't have to. That was a really good segment, Colette. Thank you. Um, I wrote down, you know, I've made my bed. I've got to lie in it. I've heard that phrase at times. And um, yeah, you might be sinning, but God still loves you and he wants the best for you. And I, I, I just, you know, if you're in a toxic relationship, the way Colette described that, you've got to get out of that. Mm -hmm. You don't deserve that. And if you've messed up with the law of chastity for the first time and your mind is taking to this place of no return or now I deserve this or what's the use of even being in a healthy relationship that's out of my control and I've turned my back on what I taught on my mission or what I believed or all these different negative things that can come into your mind that just keep you in this, you know, I've made my bed, I've got to lie in it now. 
I'm sort of like, there's no hope for me. So I just, this is the best it's going to be. It's just this toxic relationship. I just That's think. That's not true. <laughs> so. And I think also going along with that is the idea of, I work with a lot of people who feel like they've got to make a decision right now about different life things, whether that's, I've got to decide if I'm queer or not. <laughs> I've got to decide if I'm leaving the church or not. And one thing I like to highlight is you can change your mind, whether that is you're now all in, in the church, you can change your mind later to leave. You can leave and choose to come back. Um, you can identify as queer and then realize I'm actually bi and marry someone of the opposite gender. Um, you can change anytime. And I think we forget that we think, oh, I've made a decision. I've got to stick with it forever. You can make a decision that's right for you now and have it not be right for you later. Me working for the church was absolutely the right thing for my career, working professionally for them for nine years. If you count my internship at family services and being a student employee at BYU even longer, absolutely the right thing. And I felt like I had to stick in it with it was the only option, even when it wasn't as good for me anymore. And realizing, no, I can change. It was great for me then, and I'm good at it, but maybe it's not the best thing for me anymore. And I can change, and I can change my mind and do something else. And I think that applies to so many situations. It's really good. Keep any more thoughts that come to your mind, Colette? You'd well, I could just keep with? talking to you forever. I love talking about individuals and their life journeys and helping people realize there's hope. And I love talking about the complications of being queer and in the church or navigating faith transitions and sexuality. And that's one reason I love what I do is I'm like, I get to talk about this stuff all day with people and help them feel heard and seen and validated. And I think that's an important takeaway is to know no matter what your life path is, you are valid, you are loved. I think sometimes we use the term worthy as a weapon. Your worth doesn't change no matter what you do or who you are, or you always have infinite worth. Um, and I love that I get to help people hopefully realize that as they navigate complicated life situations. <laughs> uh, this has just been a great podcast, Colette. Um, so many wonderful things. I hope you recognize how unique and wonderful you are and you have all these different parts of your life, your clinical understanding, your academic training, your own personal life mm -hmm. story. And um, you are in a place to provide immense healing and hope for others. And you're a pretty young person. <laughs> you're almost 30 years younger than me. So you've got <laughs> you know, all these decades in front of you and, and you have so much grace and so much understanding. And um, I love Elder Cook's quote, unity and diversity listeners. Um, I just think we've got to do better on that. And, mm -hmm. and, and to me, the diversity recognizes people whose life's paths are a little different than us and mm -hmm. people whose life path within the church or stepping away from the church are a little different than our original hopes for them or our personal paths that we just try to love everybody on the path that they feel is best mm -hmm. for them, cheer for the success on the path. I mean, listeners know that I always invite people to stay in the church and, but also especially for queer Latter-day Saints, let them self-determine their best yeah. forward and I will just walk with them. Yeah without agenda and, and cheer them on on the, what they feel is their best path forward. But some of the things you said I thought were very helpful. Take it slow. You don't need to decide today. Mm -hmm. Even if you go down one road and you and part of that is clarifying that road is not your long-term road, to mm -hmm. just take that as a positive thing in your life um, to better understand your long-term yeah. road. <laughs> and I so, think it's good for people to understand as you mentioned one thing that came to mind is trust that people know their life best trust that they're making their life decisions with the best knowledge and and information they have about themselves and their life um you may love and care about them but they know themselves best that's one thing i've had to learn as a therapist i may know men mental health principles and things but you know you best so here's some ideas but what will and won't work is going to be different so trust that people are doing the best they can with what they're handed in life. And I know it may be hard as a parent or someone that cares about someone that's queer to see them stepping away from the church, but trust that they are doing the best they can and what's good for them 
at that point in time and things may change later. They may come back. They may not, but trust that they're doing what's good for them. You know, I may not be considered active anymore, but I know I'm exactly where God wants me to be, that I'm in a position where I can have these conversations and not be scared of losing my job, that I can touch people in a way that I couldn't before when I was scared to share my story. Um, I'm still figuring it out. I don't know how it's going to end up. I see myself marrying not a man, (laughs) but I'm not dating anyone. So who knows how that's all going to turn out. But I trust that as I'm living authentically and I'm leaning into that as much as I can and checking in with God, I just know that I'm doing the best I can and that things are going to work out. That's great. You have a great life ahead of you, Kola. And I just trust you to... I mean, I'm not your priest or lady, your family, or <laughs> I'm just a friend, but, it, you know, I just trust you to know the best way forward. And I just, you're in a great spot to just make the rest of your life decisions with all the things you've learned about yourself. So that's me talking to Colette, but it's me talking to you if you're queer that, you know, I trust you and I love the things that Colette shared and we'll just kind of sign off. We never know, these never could end. It just sort of ends because we're kind of at the time limit. So... <laughs> Um, we've been recording this on a Sunday morning, a beautiful Sunday morning in September, and it's a great time of year in Utah. And so this is Colette Dalton and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.